Father, thank you for the word of God. It is there where we find we have been ransomed. Purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Propitiated the Father, satisfied this great debt against us. Satisfied the wrath of God that we were born under as children of wrath. Satisfied that justified us and declared us righteous so we could stand forever in the presence of God. This is why we sing, Lord. This is beautiful. This is the gospel. This melts our hearts. Lord, I pray when we sing these songs again and again that they would not become old to us. It would be the truth of those Songs coming from the Word of God that re-energizes our souls. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the plan of salvation. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Numbers 13 is in this trail of rebellion. I don't know how else to put it. We looked at chapter 11 in this resistance to God, this rebellion starts to break out on the outskirts of the camp, probably has to do with this mixed multitude that came with the nation. They began grumbling and complaining, and God strikes some of them, and fire breaks out, and many die. And then as we looked at last week in chapter 12, those very close, very close to Moses, family members, begin to grumble and complain and are envious and jealous of his position. And they begin to put a threat towards Moses, and God deals with that swiftly, doesn't he? He's merciful, but he brings judgment. And so today we come now to really an apex of a chapter. I would love to do 13 and 14 together, but because of our short meeting tonight, I'll have to come back to it next time. But we come to the point that has all been leading up to this, and I call it the trail of rebellion because we've seen it ever since three days after the Red Sea. You've brought us out here to kill us. Split seas, <laughs> drown their enemies. Lack of faith, lack of faith leads to rebellion. It always does. And so we have this trail of rebellion, and now I think we're coming to the pinnacle of it. The entire nation, outside of just a few, are going to reject God here in the wilderness of Paran. I want to look at just three thoughts and do this as quickly as I can to get through chapter 13 in this next half hour. First... We see in this chapter the selecting and the commissioning, and I chose these words carefully, of influential leaders. The selecting and commissioning of influential leaders. Let me try to read down through this. Be gracious with me with some of these names, um, but let's work our way down here. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourselves men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan which I am going to give to the sons of Israel there's a great promise there you shall send a man from each of the, their father's tribes each one a leader among them so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran 
at the command of the Lord and all of the men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now these were the names from the tribes of Reuben, Shemaha, from Zachar, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, from Horai, son of Horai, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, from Issachar, Agel, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Pati, the son of Raphael, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodai, from the tribe of Joseph, and from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susai, and from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamaliel, and from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, and from the tribe of Natali, Nabai, the son of Sophi, Sophies, and from the tribe of Gadai, Gaul, the son of Maki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. When Moses sent them to spy out the land in Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into Negev, then go up to the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live in there are strong or weak, whether there are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good? Is it bad? How are the cities in which they live in? Are they open camps with fortification? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob to Labu Hamath. Then they had gone up into Negev. They came to Hebron, where Ahiman and Shemesh, uh, I forgot to work on these pronunciations, Talamai, the descendants of Anka, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. It's an old, an old city. Then they came to the valley of Eskel, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between them with some pomegranates and figs, and that place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down there. I want to just look at those first verses here in a couple of points. We realize the nation now has reached what will be referred to many times after this as Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness of Paran. This is where they've made it there, they're camped there, they're on the border, close to the border, and these spies are sent out. But I think more importantly, this is the place where and I'll say this very carefully, but I want you to hear this. This is a place where grumbling and complaining turn to unbelief and rebellion. Because grumbling and complaining don't stay there. They turn to rebellion eventually, and this is what we see in Israel's history. But this portion of Israel's history records the choice of the spies, as we see here, right, from each tribe. And these, these spies are commissioned, they're sent, they're confirmed. Uh, they're there to confirm the facts of these spies. Um, but this chapter also records not only the expedition of the spies into Canaan here, but it shows us, uh, as we read this, that their rebellion and their, the, the spies, these leaders, their rebellion and, and, and divine judgment will fall upon the nation. 
and it starts with those leaders. Now, 12 are chosen, um, each chosen from one of the 12 tribes that are listed. But the question that comes now as you begin to think about this, who sent them? Who sent them? Well, verses 1 through 3 tells us that God commanded them to send them. You can see that, right? Uh, verse 2, send out for yourself men to spy out the land. Verse 3, so Moses did this at the command of the Lord, right? <laughs> but that's not what Deuteronomy chapter 1 says. And this is interesting because I got thinking about this. Well, who's behind this? If, if God had already told them that they were to have this land, why would you send spies? Why don't they just go in? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 with me. Here we get a little bit of a history lesson, and maybe we can put together a few thoughts and harmonize what goes on here. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 20 and following. Back at the verse 18, I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Then we sent out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrible wildernesses which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. So there's the trip so far, right? I said to you, Moses speaking here, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give you. See, the Lord our God has placed the land before you. Take up your possessions as the, as the Lord our God of your father has spoken to you, and do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may stretch out, their, out the land for us, bring back to us word of the way of which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. The, and the thing pleased me, and I took 12 of your men, one from each tribe. So, you know, you, you come to this sometimes and you realize, okay, here in verse 13, it says God sent them out. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says the people asked to send spies in the land. So which is it? Is the Bible in contradiction here? So who sent these people? Well, it's very important to always look at the harmonious aspect of the scriptures, right? The word of God has a harmony to it. And many times we see one aspect said in one point in time and another aspect said in another time. And when we're able to look at those, we can put them together. And this is a good example of that, right? I think an example that we learn from is when we study the harmony of the Gospels. When you, if you were just to read only one Gospel, you, you may not get the full story of that particular event. But when you go and read the other ones, it gets a little fuller. And that's what I believe we have going on here. And so we put these two accounts together, and there's quite possibly, this is what I think after studying this, that the people asked to send spies into the land because they, they were afraid. You can start to see some of the faithlessness starting to come out. Hey, we're not sure about this. Let's send somebody out ahead of us. Moses says, let me go ask God. God says, go ahead, because I'm going to show their faithful, faithlessness through this. And I think this is what he's doing. I think God clearly knew the hearts of all people. And so he told Moses, commission these men, let them go into the land. I know that there's 10 spies above them that are gonna be, uh, that are gonna expose the rebellionness of this land. And so I think the answer is they did go to Moses and said, send somebody and God permitted it and God commanded it. 
And so these men from every tribe are selected, and we read them there, and, uh, and, and, and this, will, this will permeate, this lack of faith will permeate down through there, and it will be exposed. A, a verse that I, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of um, psalms that record histories of Israel. One of them is Psalms 106. In not particularly this one, but one we just saw in chapter 11 with the meat issue, the Bible says this in 106.15. It says, so he gave them their request, but he sent a wasting disease among them. God often will allow somebody to pursue rebellion. He'll give them what their rebellious heart wants. And he will let the consequences be difficult in their life. Now, he's still a merciful God. And when people repent, he is there to restore. But he often does that. And I think he's using this to expose this lack of faith that the nation has, this rebellious lack of faith. Now, the order of the tribes in verse 4 through 15 is really closely to the tribes that are listed in chapter 1 as they took a census there for the warriors there. There's a couple, couple alterations. Zebulun and Ephraim and Gad and Napoli are just reversed. But the order is very similar, right? So they go down through that. They choose leaders from there. But there is a particular verse, look at verse 8 there in your text, and we come to this Hoshea or Hosea. Uh, Hoshea is probably the way it was pronounced back then. Hoshea, and this particular man is unique. Now there's two in here that really catch our eye, don't they? There's, if you know your Bible and you know what's going to happen here, you find Caleb in verse 6, and then in verse 8 you find this Hoshea or Hosea, son of Nun. Now, chapter, verse 16 clarifies that this is Joshua. Notice that the Bible says, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hoshea, or Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now, whether he changed his name at this point or not, we're not sure. He's referred to earlier. He comes, he's young. Joshua comes and helps uh, Moses uh, in the track and holding up his hands and so forth and all those type of things. We've already seen him. But it's interesting. I think his name is brought out there because his name means Lord of Redemption, Lord of Salvation. And so he is sent with these uh, 12. He's one of the 12 and he's very important. He has a, a very important name, right? Names were important back then, right? So he is the, the Lord of Redemption or the Lord of Salvation. And there's a real connection to the name we translate Jesus, Jesus as well that has ties to that Hebrew name, Joshua. And then you put together that Lord of Salvation. There's a really beautiful connection to Joshua. And, and Lord willing, I, I really do want to continue after Deuteronomy and get into Joshua because Joshua is a very fun book. The nation's walking with God and, and they just storm through the land and incredible things happen. Now, since the tribe of Levi doesn't have warriors, right? They, they, were, they didn't have any warriors. Um, Joseph, half-tribes, send men from Ephraim and Manasseh. So that makes a total 12, if you're wondering there. Now, um, in verse 14, Moses gives the spies instructions that, the, uh, that would help them in their commissioning, a very de definite and specific uh, things they're supposed to do. Look at verse 17. When Moses sent the spies out into the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into Negev and then go up into the hill country. And so they're, they're, 
they're penetrating up through the south. I, I, I just didn't have time to put a map together for you, but they're, they're coming up from the south, and they're going to come up through that southern border, and they're going to work their way up, and they're eventually going to get into the hill country. And, and that's an interesting group, interesting place, because later, when they are in the land, Caleb is going to come back, and he's going to ask for this territory, uh, this hill country, because of his faithfulness to God, and Joshua was going to grant it to him. But notice in verse 18, the spies are instructed here, you'll see here, to assess the strength of the military power, the military people in this land, and whether they're ready for war or not. Verse 18, Moses says, see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many. So the spies are instructed to assess this. What's it look like? What's your assessment of their numbers? Um, can you determine how large their military resistance is? Can they mount to good resistance? Now, despite the lack of faith, this is good tactics, isn't it? Right? You, you really don't want to get into a battle and, and not know what you're up against. Verse 19, they are to assess the land and really to estimate the economic resources here. Look at verse 19. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? There's a lot of bad land out in the desert. The land they went through to get there is horrible. <laughs> it's nothing but mountains and rocks and sand. And so is this land good or bad? How are the cities which they live in? Do they, do they live in open camps or fortifications? What, what good, good thinking to look at that? Were they living in cities or open fields? Were they defenseless? Could they fortify themselves quickly? In verse 20, they are to assess the agriculture possibilities of the land. Is it indeed flowing with milk and honey like God told us? Look at verse 20. How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Is there trees in it or not? That's important. Make, a, make an effort then to come get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. And so here at the end of verse 20, it tells us that there were grapes were in harvest and and tells us that this is a good idea, that the land is productive, it produces. And so the time frame, most people believe, is somewhere around end of July, mid-July, end of July, maybe first of, as late as the 1st of August, depending on how the season went that year. All this was intelligible, business, warlike proposal to help the people assess the immediate possibility of the conquest and can this land be sustainable. But God was doing something else. God was doing something else. He's using these 12 influential leaders to expose faithfulness when they return. And it's going to come from the leadership. Second thought, my note says that my point says this, a peek into the promised land. Now, as they were instructed, the 12 spies you'll see in these 21 through 24, I already read this text, the spies go in, they're there for 40 days. This is espionage, right? I, I entitled the sermon, Espionage and the Plan of God, right? So there's 12 guys in this land for 40 days. Uh, you, you know, 12 guys walking through several foreign countries, right? We see a list of Jebusites and Amorites and so forth. They're in a foreign country. So they... They're careful, they're dressed right, they know where to go, they're spying things out. This is true espionage, isn't it? And they're there for 40 days, and they search it out thoroughly, and they, 
they gain over this course of time a, a clear and coherent picture of what God is giving them and what is the conditions of this land and the abilities of the people. You'll notice in verse 21 that there is this summary of this expedition here. Verse 21 says, So they went up and spied out the land in the wilderness of Zen, as far as Rehob and Mebo Hamath. So they, they go in there. And in verse 22 through 24, it starts to describe the details that would have been great importance to the future of Israel. And so this 40 days of espionage and these 12 men doing this full investigation from everything from the terrain, um, working their way through this wilderness of Zen, um, up from Kadesh Barnea, uh, and then making their way all the way, and this is, I'm just describing, if you looked at a map, they're going to go all the way to the head of the Jordan Valley. And so they would have looked at this entire land. They would have seen the wilderness where David later would hide from Saul. They would have passed through Samaria where Jesus would later meet the woman at the well. They would have most likely walked by the shores of Galilee where Jesus would preach and do miracles. They're all spying this out. And what thoughts must have been going through these 12 spies' minds as they passed through this land for the very first time? It's a fertile land. It's, it's full of water and plenty and, and uh, a beautiful place. They finally, they come to this valley of Eskol which is really, um, we believe, to be the center of the Jordan Valley, some of the most richest soil. Some of the soil uh, experts have read stuff on them that there's places in the Jordan Valley that go 200 feet deep without a change of soil. You can dig in your backyard and you'll go down a couple feet and they'll hear it's sand, <laughs> right? And then you may hit a layer of dirt or clay or something. Out west is way different. You hit layers of rocks and clay and all kinds of things. Um, there's places in the Jordan Valley where there are no soil chains for 200 feet. The soil is identical. And so it is a tremendously fertile. And notice in this verse here, as they look in 23, they gab this single cluster of grapes and they cut it down and they bring it back on poles. I, I don't know about you, I can remember my Sunday school lesson with these guys carrying grapes this, you know, the size of people. You know, and I, I'm not sure that's what this was. Um, they also got some other fruit and things like that. But I don't know, it was, it was, a, it was, it was plentiful, right? And, and I think what God is showing them is he's saying, look, I am good God. I give this kind of thing to evil people. Imagine what I'll do for you if you'll just obey me if you'll just believe in me. He was showing them his goodness, even in a fallen world. And you wonder if they kept his promises in their mind as they viewed out this land. The land was filled with cities already built. There's homes that are constructed as they go through this. Clearly, there's orchards already planted. This was truly a gift from God. As we get to Deuteronomy, we'll see where Moses is preparing them and reminding them of this goodness of God. This is a repeated theme throughout Israel's history. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. Just listen to this. He says here, Then it shall come about, Moses speaking on behalf of God, when the Lord your God will bring you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a long time promise. This went all the, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. To give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. Houses full of all good things which you did not fill. 
hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and you will be satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, years later, when they are in the land, towards the end of the ministry of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 11, he says this, you crossed over from Jordan and came to Jericho. God did an amazing thing. We'll see that. The citizens of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites, the Prezerites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gersherites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Thus I gave them into your hand. I sent the hor- I, then I sent hornets before you and drove out two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. I gave you land on which you had no labor, cities of which you had not built or, and, and you had not lived in. You are eating the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and Egypt and serve the Lord. This is 40 plus years after the conquering of the promised land. This is a constant reminder that God was providing for his people. As I got thinking about this in a way of application, you and I, uh, I think as New Testament saints, we see heaven as that promised land, right? All this looks forward to a greater promised land, <laughs> way more than the milk and honey of the Jordan Valley, right? They still have pestilence and disease and all kinds of problems. But when I think of the promised land for me, I look forward to heaven. And so I got thinking about heaven this afternoon and, or this morning, and I began to write just a little bit, and I want to read some thoughts to you. Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe there's those who have spied it out, in a sense, have gone before us? Have you seen the glories of heaven through the promises of God's word? That's how we see the glories of heaven right now, through the promises of God's word. Have you seen Christ in the center of heaven It's golden streets and crystal seas. It's a land of no sun because the glory of Christ himself is there. Have you seen heaven with no tears, no pain, but eternal joy while we bask in the beauty of our Savior? Have you seen heaven that is absent of sin and sickness and death, a place where there is no darkness, but a place where the nations are healed? Have you seen heaven where there is no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb are center stage? Have you seen heaven where the followers of Christ's robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and are given full rights to the tree of life? Have you seen heaven where the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, rules and reigns in perfect love and gives all who thirst the spring of living water without cost and its gates are never closed? while the children of the king reign in illumination forever and ever? Have you seen heaven with all things made new? Have you seen heaven where the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the liars will never enter, but instead find their eternity in a lake that burns with fire? Have you seen heaven in its perfect justice and its perfect mercy that produces perfect worship? 
See, that's what the scriptures do for you. I sat in Revelations 20 through 21 and just read that, and that's my writings from that. See, they were to see God's provision, and we are to see that as well. Jerry Packer just died a year ago or two, and he said he spent an hour a day in his older years meditating on heaven. It's our promised land. And though we look through really dimly lit mirror because of our humanity, right, and our position here on this earth, nonetheless, we believe God's word, right? And our souls long for the promised land. The older you get, the more you know this Bible of yours and mine, you long for heaven, don't you? And so we believe our God and our Savior, right? And when we study this, we realize that the majority, right? We call it often the majority report. They reject it. They reject God's word. They reject all God's promises. They, They reject all God's instructions. The majority rejects them. But because God has granted us faith and poured his love into our hearts, which would be the minority, right? We believe. And we long for the promised land. We long for that end of that race, to to run that race, to keep that faith, to fight that good fight. We long for the end of that because there's a crown laid up, Paul says, not only for me, but all those who long for his appearing. Do you long for it? Are you longing for the return of Christ? These folks in Israel in this time forgot the glory of God and fear took them away. Faithfulness took them away. That's my last point here. The faithlessness that rejects truth. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me as we wrap this, wrap this up. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Well, upon return of this 40-day espionage, the spies now report the finding to Moses, Aaron, and all of the congregation. And notice in verse 27 what happens. They told them, they, thus they told them and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly... I love the terminology. Does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit as they laid that out. And you'll notice that the testimony was unanimous. Twelve spies, a unanimous teaching here of what took place there, what they saw. The land was good and fruitful. It was flowing with milk and honey. It was, it was productive and fertile is the idea there. And they even brought evidence, Right? They're showing what came from the vine and the trees in the central valley of Jordan. But verse 28, there's a major change in the tone. Nevertheless, uh uh-oh. The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anka there. Now the majority of the spies now turn their attention to the inhabitants. A very strong people with strong cities. Most likely they saw Jericho, which was tremendously fortified. In fact, I think this is why God sends them to Jericho first. 
I think they're referring to this. He says, okay, remember 40 years ago when you didn't believe that? That thing's coming down and you're not lifting a finger. You're just going to march around and play your little horns. We'll see that in time. Verse 29, we see the display of the detailed work of this recontinence, recontinence work here. But all of this did was further the fear that was sweeping through the nation. Look at verse 29. Amalekite is living in the land of Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill countries. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the sea side of Jordan. They start listing the people. This means, that, you know, when you see this list, this means war, now another war, now another war, now another war. And they're using that to bring fear monitoring, bring fear into the people. It's just not a list of people. It's a list of battles to show them what they were up against. But old Caleb, <laughs> old Caleb, where's Caleb? There's a Caleb. It's a great name. We named a son after this Caleb. He's watching. He's watching the response. He's seeing the discouragement and the agitation start to sweep through the nation. And in verse 30, he just cannot keep silent. Notice what he says. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. That means there was a problem, right? They were getting agitated and their voices were becoming lifted. And he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of this for we will surely overcome it. What helpful insight to quiet this crowd, to, to limit this negative intensity that was growing. And so Caleb has this attitude of positive and optimistic, I think the best word is faith, right? He had faith in God's word, and his statement is just unmistakably powerful. We should by all means, no resistance, no lack of faith, go up and just take this thing. Our God's an overcomer. Isn't it interesting Jesus uses those words? Remember in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, you're going to have trials and tribulations in this world, but I'll give you peace because I have overcome. These are the same terms, right? Our Lord overcomes the trials and struggles that we have. And, and Caleb knew that God could overcome this. Man, you got to love this guy. He's encouraging, isn't it? Don't you want to be around a Caleb? But notice, well, there's another Caleb in here. Yeah, I just thought about it. Uh, but notice the defeatist attitude of other spies. Verse 31 and following. Verse 31 and 32. But the men who had gone up with him. This great statement. Maybe they were starting to be a trickle of faith back in the people. Oh, yeah, that's right. God did say he was going to give this. Maybe they were just starting to, to turn and to ready to follow. And then all of a sudden, here comes the men that went up with him. Look at the, look at the exact opposite statement here. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that endeavor, uh, in, uh, devours its inhabitants, and all of the people whom we saw in there are men of great size. If you watch the 6 o'clock news, this is it. This is 
this is nothing but negativity and fear-mongering, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice just to watch one half an hour of positive news? It will never happen because we live in a fallen world. And you have unredeemed people, in most cases, reporting the news. It'll never happen. And that's what happens here, right? And so once the people heard this negative news, it carries them away and this momentum of almost like a hysteric state of panic starts to break out, right? All led through poor, faithless leadership. Now let me give you just, again, some thoughts of application. When we don't live by faith, our difficulties and our problems are magnified. They become greater than they are. And this is such a good example. When we don't live by faith and say, God, I know you love me. You love me so much you knew me from the foundations of the world. You sent your son to purchase my soul. You sent your son to satisfy your wrath against me. You have redeemed me. You have bought me. You've made me a child of God. You have a place reserved in heaven for me. Um, You've done everything for me. If you don't hang on to that, and you go through life with faithlessness, your problems will be magnified. And that's what's happening here. The giants of the lands become like gods in their eyes, right? Because they said, look, they're giants, and we were like what? What does that happen? Exaggeration. These are gods, and we are, we are little grasshoppers that they could just step on and smash us. What an exaggeration. See, that's what faithless takes you. And faithless causes you not to believe all things and and, and love and all that. It just, it just causes all that, right? And that's what's happening here. They didn't love God and they didn't love these people that God loved. Because of this lack of faith, they're just grasshoppers. They're not God's chosen nation. They're not God's rescued people from slavery. They're not God's redeemed. They're grasshoppers. Is that how you feel some days? I I know I've been there. I'll throw myself in that. You live faithlessly for a little while. You're broken because something didn't go your way or you're hurt or something happens and pretty soon everything is negative and you see the worst of it. You're just a half-empty type of person. And what God's trying to show this is this is our lack of faith in Him and everything gets distorted from then on. But there was a couple true leaders there, right? Caleb and Joshua. These are true leaders. These are men of faith. They're men of God. They believe the promises of God. They have this no, let's go attitude. They're very encouraging to study, aren't they? They weren't like the others. They were the minority report. Let's go. Let's take the land. Let's obey God. Let's put our faith in him alone. But the majority report said, no, let's not go. We'll die. We'll perish. Everything's worse. See, the minority report believes God. The majority report believes in self. And you end up a grasshopper. Romans 10, 17. So by faith, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. See, there's a real key to living faithful lives. 
It is the word of Christ. The minute we get away from that, we'll go to the word of Scott or put your name in there, word of whoever you are or, or the word of Fox News or word of whatever else, right? You'll put your faith there. And pretty soon everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Look with me at Hebrews 11. I just want to end here in the, just the last couple seconds I have. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, just to give you encouragement. And, and don't miss chapter 14. Boy, we're going to get into how God responds. We'll get into that next time. Look at chapter, he, chapter 11 of, of Hebrews. This, you know this passage, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's why I wrote that little section on, on heaven today. That stored my faith when I wrote that. I read Revelations 19, 20, and 21. I read it out, and then I said, I don't want to look at it again. I just want to think about heaven for a moment. And I just began to type. Because that's, this is the definition of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I haven't been to heaven yet. If I have, fire me. Because <laughs> I'm probably trying to write a book and get millions of dollars. By faith, I believe there's a heaven. And there is a Christ in the center of it who is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he lights and illuminates it. And we will rule and reign with him forever. I believe that. And this is the definition of faith. And notice what it says. Look at this. I think this is Caleb and Joshua. For by it, men of old gained approval. Do you think God was happy with Caleb and Joshua? I think they felt that kind of spiritual attaboy on their back, maybe. It was hard. There are probably, who, who knows? They probably, uh, we'll see. They actually would like to kill him in the next chapter. Maybe it wasn't that fun. <laughs> but when you stand for what is right, you stand for what God's doing, there's great strength there. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. If you're an evolutionist in here, you're wrong according to the scriptures. I'm sorry to tell you that, and, and I'd love to meet with you and help you understand that, but that rejects God to the highest degree. The Bible says, by faith. They go, well, you've never seen it. Well, were you there? How many other billions of years you keep tacking onto this thing as well? No, by faith, because my Bible, God, we believe God's word told us that. And there's great comfort in that. So, yes, you're afraid the world's going to get hot or cold or whatever it is this month. Um, we know God made it, and he, you know, no man can destroy it. Yes, be good stewards of it. It's God's, right? And so I love this. So that what is seen, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Ex nihilo. That's the power of God. Creation just kind of evolved along and got better. God said, yeah, let it be. Boom, it's there. Right? Do you believe that? A lot of Christians don't. I believe in a six-day creation. God said, and there was night, and there was day. God said, and there was night, and there was day. God said, and there was night, and there was day. It's really clear. You don't need Hebrew. It's right there. It's our God speaking into existence creation. Look at this, verse 4, by faith, uh, Abel offered up a better sacrifice than Cain. We could go all on this. This is such a beautiful passage. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he, was, he would not see death. What a beautiful scene. Love to see the replay of that one. 
Verse 6 will end with this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Think about that scene in Numbers 13. Was God pleased with those ten spies in the nation? Faithless. And it led to what? Death. Faithlessness leads to death. That's what will happen to all people who don't go to heaven. Faithlessness will lead to eternal death. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. But look at this. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those. In some translations, add the word diligent here because it's a strong uh, verb here, of those who seek him or diligently pursue him by faith. That's Caleb and Joshua. God was pleased with them. Is he pleased with us? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Numbers 13. I know there has been several people in this congregation that have told me that Numbers 13 changed their direction in life as a Christian. They did not want to be with the faithless. And though they could not see what God was doing, they put their faith in God who was calling them to do something they did not understand or could see or even know the way, but they believed. And so I thank you for this chapter. It is very encouraging to us as Christians, and yet we see the fallout. Faithlessness leads to death when we speak of salvation. And Lord, there are times, certainly, we are faithless. Sometimes we let our circumstances and the Woes of this world rob us of a joy of faith. But true believers, they repent of that. And they put their faith back into a God who promises and provides. He who started a good work in us will see it through to completion. We will see heaven. We will stand on those gold streets and that crystal sea. Those gates will be open to us. There will be the brightness and glory of Christ who lights it eternally. Sin and Satan will be defeated. Death will be no more. Tears will be wiped away and the joy of eternal lasting life will be ours because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We believe that, God. And so when we come up to the borders of difficulties in our life, We're against some now as a church. Give us faith, Lord, to do what's right when it's hard, when it's difficult. Give us faith to walk with you and follow you. You're a great rewarder of those who do that. We ask that you do that in our individual lives and in our church. We give you all the glory and praise for what was said and sung today here. In Jesus' name, amen.